Instead of names and dates, let's focus on the narrative. I'm Adam Blesky. Each month I sit down with a friend to have a real conversation about a part of history that's new to them. The goal is to make connections, to foster curiosity, and to appreciate how incredible the story of humanity truly is. I'm not an expert. This isn't a lecture. This is HI 101. Last time on HI101, I told you a whole bunch of lies about King Arthur because it was April Fool's Day, and uh, I thought it would be fun if I managed to trick a few people. From some of the reaction I got, I, uh, I think I pulled it off. This time, we'll be talking about what we actually know about the historical Arthur, which isn't really much, and how literary tradition has shifted over the years in reaction to the societies in which the stories were told. Let's begin. I'm here on HI101 with Dan McGinnis. Hello. And we just lied to you a bunch about King Arthur. Oh, what? <laughs> what? Oh, did you think that was real, Dan? I'm sorry. Like, I nothing is... I should have known. Like, this is via the internet and nothing on the internet is real. Correct. Um, no, I thought we'd do something a little bit different with the, with the um, April Fool's episode this time around and uh, talk about something that's actually kind of contentious in, in historical bodies of work. I, uh, I found a couple of really good quotes about King Arthur that I'd just like to read to you before we get started at all. Okay. So the first one's from Thomas Charles Edwards, uh, a 20th century Oxford historian. Yeah, Tommy. Yeah. Uh-huh. And he wrote on the subject of, of King Arthur, at this stage of the inquiry, one can only say that there may well have been a historical Arthur, but the historian can as yet say nothing of value about him. Ooh. Oh, I've got an even better one. Number two, from Noel Myers, uh, an archaeologist, also at Oxford, actually. No figure on the borderline of history and mythology has wasted more of the historian's time. Oh, sick burn. So we're going to waste some time on King Arthur. All right. I, I think it's worth talking about because I, I, I do think there is a, a lot of this like, oh, but he could have been. That's the problem with Arthur for historians is that everyone loves talking about it. Yeah, I, I, I saw a couple of other places talking about him as a as a, a classic uh, example of the where there's smoke, there's fire argument. <laughs> um, just there's there's all these things that could could maybe point towards King Arthur and we have stories about him. So well, why couldn't he be real? There's smoke. So there's a dragon head shaped fire in the sky. Mm -hmm. And And that's a poor that's a poor, poor argument. It's a really bad one, and it's bad history, and I understand the urge for people to look into this further, but like there's there's gonna be there's gonna have to be some like very big like makes real news, not just history news type discovery before mm. anyone's gonna change their mind on King Arthur being real yeah that that style of argument is the uh come on approach to history. Yeah, that's not a bad characterization. Come on. Uh -huh. 
Yeah, pretty much. These stories. So let's let's cut right to it. Was King Arthur real? That's a complicated question. Maybe. Was the King Arthur that we tell stories about real? No. Mm. No, there really, really wasn't. There are a couple of candidates out there that people really stretch for where it's like, well, there's this one Roman commander who, you know... His name was, his middle name was Artorius. And, you know, he fought at this battle, we think. But also, like, he was a really minor character in, like, this one historical tract that was written, you know, 150 years later. And so you'd think that the real King Arthur would make it bigger. Or, like, there's a lot of that version of story where people are going, this could be the real King Arthur. They're finding things about him. A lot of times they don't even have the name Arthur tied to them in any way, shape, or form. Right. So at this point, it becomes like a semantic argument. If it's a person who's not named Arthur and they didn't rule all of Britain and they didn't, you know, have an order of knights at a place called Camelot, is that even Arthur? I'm going to say no. Semantics, yeah. It's it's not though. Like it's, it's just, it's not. Yeah. So that's kind of the place that we're going to be talking from today. Some of the stuff that we talked about that was real, I mean, that period from 450 to 550 is extremely sparse. That Saxon invasion in the wake of the Roman withdrawal from Britain is very real. It was a time of crisis for Britons. That was an invading force. They did not want them there. There were multiple attempts to drive them back. How successful they were, we're not entirely sure because of that record-keeping issue. Eventually, they would fail, and the Saxons would uh, would settle in Britain, and, and we know the story from there. That's not an issue. It's this gap of the specific events that happens within that period of time that gets really contentious for some people, and and it's an odd thing to get contentious about. It's it's a very, um, in my opinion, like emotionally driven argument, and I get it. I pulled out a couple of books before we started recording uh, and set them on the desk over there. Did you see what they were? I mean, I, I saw that one was Le Mort d'Arteau. Yeah. So I've got a copy of Mallory. I've got a copy of Tennyson's uh, Idols of the King. I've got T.H. White's The Once and Future King sitting out here. I love, I love Arthurian legend. It's very, very good. Mm-hmm. And it's compelling for really good reasons. That doesn't make it a real thing that happened. And I would almost argue that it's better for not having happened. Yeah. Well, I mean, I can see it being particularly emotional because i i don't know a lot about uk culture but but for britain it seems like it's very woven into it's a foundation myth it's woven into uh, elements of their culture that that finding out that it's it's mythological as opposed to something that actually speaks to an element of who you are like mm-hmm. that can I can get emotional. Yeah, definitely. It's it's just the, the reason I find that particularly strange is that to make the same arguments about, say, Greek mythology or Norse mythology would seem kind of silly. And you, you know what I mean? Like to, to have someone that was uh, constantly looking to try and prove that Theseus was a real individual that really, you know, like that's that's not something that anyone really tries to do. And the only reason that Arthur seems so ripe for that is that at a very early uh, stage of this mythology, somebody went and this happened around this time, which is a time where there were few records. So it's plausible. Exactly. 
And, and that's interesting to me because the rest of what's happening in those stories is just as fantastical, if not more so in some cases, than, than the mythological bodies from other, uh, other areas of the world. But we're willing to, for some reason, try and strip away all the things that are really interesting about Arthurian legends to a point where it's kind of just another guy. It's kind of just another king. It's the king that you and I talked about in the first part. That's all that really could be left. And at that point, I'm not sure what we're really celebrating about that person beyond any other early leader in Britain. Another concept I want to talk about a little bit before we get too much further is um, what I'm calling the invention of the past. There's this idea in history called presentism. Presentism wasn't really identified until late 19th century, early 20th, early 20th century. And it's this idea that we need to understand when we're talking about history that the past is different from the present. And I know that sounds like a silly basic thing, but concepts of time are very much cultural and they're very much human invented. And we need to like actually consider that when talking about a lot of time passing. It wasn't always the case that when talking about the past, people realized that the past was substantially different than the present. And the way that that manifests is your Renaissance paintings of, uh, you know, um, scenes from the Bible where people look like they're in 16th century Florence because the person painting it was from 16th century Florence. There are people who will point to that and say, well, that's because they were trying to paint their patron into the painting, et cetera, et cetera. But part of the problem there is that they just don't understand that somebody living 1500 years before in a different part of the world would look any different than they do or dress any different than they do. It's just not something people thought about. Which is an interesting contrast to modern media and culture that that seems to view the past as much more different than it was. I agree. There's been quite a bit of a swing, perhaps even too far. But I mean, an, another interesting way that this manifests is in the creation of the genre of science fiction. You can't have science fiction until you realize that the past is different than the present. So you can't conceive of the future as being different than the present until you understand that the past was different. Right. Modern science fiction doesn't exist until the 19th century. And that's because you have to have this conception of um, progress, really, is what it comes down to. The Industrial Revolution clued us in to the fact that stuff's going to change. Exactly. And so the reason I bring this up is because the majority of what we're going to be talking about for uh, Arthur is rooted in the high medieval period. And we're going to be talking about things like um, knights in plate armor riding, uh, jousting on, on, uh, horses with stirrups. And those are not things that existed in the four fifties. They just weren't there. Did saddles? Saddles, saddles, too, yeah. saddles yeah. existed. Yes. Stirrups did not. Yeah. And you can't joust without stirrups. Really? Yeah. Interesting. Why? Uh, because you have to have something to brace against when you hit with the lance or else you're going to be knocked out of your saddle. Okay. Yep. Yeah. That checks out. Yeah, it's a it's this weird little thing. But again, like this is a prime example of presentism, right? You wouldn't think about the fact that well, the Romans didn't actually have stirrups. Horses have saddles have stirrups. People who ride horses sit in the stirrups. You just with the horses. What what's well, you know, it, what's strange it, about this? It's hard to conceive of making a, a horse car without having a place to put your feet. Yes. Yeah. Well, I I mean. 
Yeah, exactly. So I, I bring all of this up because one of the one of the major uh, characteristics of Arthurian legend is we're never really going to be talking about the post-Roman era here, like at all. We're going to be talking about um, periods as we go along and how their retelling of the Arthurian legend is going to say something about that era more than it is going to say anything about the actual, you know, potentially historical Arthurian period. Right. Um, yeah, we, we there's there's so much more to be learned from the things that uh, arise from presentism than there really is from any of the tellings that are going to come out of this because the tellings themselves are going to be almost entirely fabrications in uh, in 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 every case, and so that's not useful to us uh, from a historical standpoint. It's interesting. It's interesting to me, and and I'm sure to you as well, but. You know this this uh, this is skirting dangerously far from from history at this point. So I'm trying to keep it on track as much as possible. Well, and what you're looking at is what the stories that people tell tell us about them. Mm-hmm. This is essentially historiography using something that is not actual historical writing to perform that historiography. Oh, backdoored it. Uh huh. Got it in there. This is for the historiography nerds. <laughs> Shout out. Um, let's talk about the Historia Britannum. The Historia was. As far as we know, the earliest source for Arthur on paper, uh, written about the year 828, and you'll notice that already we're a good 350 years uh, after where Arthur would have been if there was an Arthur at all, Right. and this poses a significant problem. Um, nobody, nobody remembers for 350 years, it's not how it works. Oral tradition tells us. And oral traditions have a place, but, you know, they they have uh, wildly varying amounts of accuracy. 350 years of the telephone game can maybe skew your results. Just a little bit. Um, it's, attribu- it's attributed to this uh, Welsh monk named uh, Nennius, who had done some other historical writings. But, you know, there, there are significant problems with uh, with scholarship in this period of time being being accurate, especially when it's coming from uh, the ecclesiastic tradition, and basically all of it is. Uh, there's this um, school of history that's being done in this period known as uh, hagiography, which generally speaking means uh, a life of the saints. The key identifying characteristic of a hagiography um, from a historical standpoint is you're going to write about a person and it is going to be it is going to be a fluff piece. This is going to be a very good look at this person's life or sometimes this group's existence or whatever. And it ends up being to such an extreme point that facts, you know... They don't really tell the real story. You want to get to the heart of it. And sometimes the facts aren't enough to do that. So sometimes you leave out facts that make things look bad. Sometimes you embellish facts that make things look good. Sometimes you make facts up out of whole cloth because it sounds pretty good. As I said, this is normally about the lives of the saints, but it can be about just about anybody. And uh, you'd consistently get, you know, lists of, you know, all the kings of France and here's all the great things that they did. And (laughs) so it was like BuzzFeed. Well, uh, yeah, but it would be several hundred pages long and written out by hand by a monk. Um, uh, it would say all sorts of good things about these men and it would include some historical stuff, but I wouldn't necessarily take one of those and, you know, 
without critique accepted as historical fact because you'd be wrong it at some degree fan fiction too yeah actually that's that's maybe even a better comparison than uh, than buzzfeed actually um i like that a lot <laughs> so you can picture the the monk rating by candlelight king Dwayne was the best king because i you know I don't know if I'd ever wear it, but I wouldn't mind a t-shirt that said hagiography, essentially fan fiction. <laughs> um, yeah. Arthur appears in this, uh, this Historia, and he's described as a military leader rather than a king. They don't even call him a king, oh. specifically. Um, they say that he fought alongside Britons, which is interesting, rather than was a Briton. It establishes Vortigern as inviting the Saxons to Britain. So that part is uh, uh, there from the beginning. Uh, it establishes Arthur's 12 battles against the Saxons. It uh, includes the, the final battle, the Battle of Baden Hill, um, as one of those battles. Now, that battle took place too late to fit in with some of the other stuff that we talked about in the first half. The Battle of Baden Hill would have been around the year 500. It seems like what happens is later sources would conflate the Battle of Baden Hill with the Battle of Bath and kind of call them the same, basically the same thing. Because when you're writing something five centuries later, well, it's a couple decades. Battle of Baden Hill, we're pretty sure, we're not certain, but we're pretty sure the Battle of Baden Hill actually happened. Hmm. We don't have a ton of information about it, but there are multiple sources close enough in time to that event uh, and enough sort of other corroborating evidence to suggest that that battle did in fact take place. Um, whether there was an Arthur there, extremely skeptical. Is there an actual location for it? Is Baden Hill like a, a real place? Uh, there's a couple of candidates for what Baden Hill would be. Okay. Um, promising. Uh, near Salisbury Hill is one of the common ones. Near Bath is another one of them. Uh, uh, another common location. But, you know, for, you know, by the same regard, um, is it the Rubicon, I believe? We don't know where it is anymore. Hmm. Uh, like, these things happen. Yeah. And the crossing of the Rubicon certainly did happen. It's gone now. So, you know, that, that, that particular fact doesn't really bother me that much. Now, this Historia does say that Arthur single-handedly killed 960 men at this battle. That's a big number. Yeah, I'm, I'm guessing no on that one. I mean, your arm would just get so tired. I mentioned that we have other sources for Baden, and they're earlier sources than this. They conspicuously do not mention Arthur. Ooh. Yeah, so that's a problem. But they do mention other people. Yes. Uh, mm -hmm. Around the time that this Historia was written, who was, who was in charge in Britain? It was a kind of mishmash of different kingdoms yeah, at this yeah. point. I have the impression of like competing oh. kingdoms and a bunch of random Yeah, this is when known. you get like Northumbria and stuff like that. Um it's it's a number of smaller kingdoms that are kind of dividing up the whole country. Okay. This also isn't the earliest history of the kings that's written. So him being left off of that is also a little bit conspicuous. Um when you have a list of British kings and Arthur's not on there, that's a bit of an issue. Most notably, uh, uh, there was a historian uh, called Bede, Historia Ecclesiastica Gentis Britonum, uh, Ecclesiastic History of the People of Britain, was written in 731. 
so uh, nearly a century before, no mention of Arthur whatsoever. He did a pretty extensive history of, you know, the entire history of Britain, which is is pretty bad in general, but um, you'd think something like this would get mentioned. That's a juicy story. He does also mention by name uh, Ambrosius Aurelianus, the supposed brother of Arthur. Now, there's theories that maybe Ambrosius Aurelianus was conflated into the character of Arthur. Um, But again, we're really stretching at that point. Wasn't he the brother of Uther? Oh, sorry. Yeah, you're right. He absolutely was. Yep. My mistake. Okay. Um, a, lot, a lot of very same names getting, yep. getting conflated here. Uh, no, good call. Uh, but in any case, Ambrosius Aurelianus, which uh, uh, we actually talked about him with uh, with the other order, uh, Aurelius Ambrosius, that's a mistake that's going to be made by Geoffrey of Monmouth, who we're going to be talking about later. Most of what I talked about in the first half was based on Jeffrey's uh, history of Arthur. That's where you get sort of the broadest but also most plausible uh, version of events. So that means that we have a real person. We are fairly certain or, or relatively certain that there was an Ambrosius Aurelianus who was a, a Roman military commander who was in Britain uh, around the fall of Rome. That being said... His relation to Constantine III, not real. Um, oh. as, yeah, yeah, no. Constantine did not send sons to Britain. That part was completely made up. I've been so lied to. The Constantine in our story from uh, from earlier did not exist. Constantine was a very different man than what we talked about. Um, he was still a usurper, but um, that, that whole part, no. So we have Arthur's uncle, potentially a real guy, not related to the emperor, yeah, like this is all not, again, really not looking good for the historical record, right? But what a great story. Very good. I enjoyed it a lot. Next up, we have the uh, Annales Cambriae, the, the history of uh, Wales. This one's got multiple authors. It's not just like one monk sat down and wrote it this time. It may have dated as early as the mid-10th century. But the earliest copy we have is like from the 12th century. And you get to that spot where it's like somebody has a copy of this book, but they don't actually have the original book. Mm-hmm. And when that happens, we aren't really sure where there might have been transcription errors, etc. Um, so we can really only date things as early as we actually have a physical copy. Especially when it's all being done by hand and mm-hmm. monks can take liberties. Mm-hmm. Exactly. It establishes the Battle of Camlan as the death of Arthur, uh, brings up the character of Mordred. But again, he's very, he's really not that fleshed out at this point in time. He's very much a sort of a, a legendary warrior is basically as far as that gets. He's somebody who killed 960 men, probably Saxons. Then we get to the Historia Regium Britanniae, the history of the British kings. Um, this is the one written by Geoffrey of Monmouth that we pulled from for our first half. Written... Uh, in the 12th century, the first half of the 12th century, um, Geoffrey of Monmouth was a, a Welsh cleric, and he claimed that he got all of this information from an ancient book written in an ancient language. Um, <laughs> That's so specific. Uh, well, you know, it's the... You know, you've you've seen the same justification used how many other places in history. It's almost always for, bunk for fan fiction. Yeah, for yeah, fan fiction for exactly, fan fiction. and that's exactly what Geoffrey of Monmouth ends up writing. He, like, I mean, his his history is the one that begins with Britain 
being founded by Trojans after the fall of the city. And he tells like 2000 years of British history, all of which is complete garbage. And the few actual real things that are in this history, for example, uh, Julius Caesar's invasion of Britain are wildly inaccurate and very poorly told, which means that like, even if the things that are in there that we wish were real were real, they're probably not done properly. Yeah. Like, for something that happened over 2,000 years ago, Caesar's invasion of Britain is very well documented. Oh. It's extremely well documented. Well, I mean, Caesar himself wrote histories. True. And I, I mean, you can look at that and go, well, there's going to be a lot of shameless self-promotion in there, and you'd be right. But that doesn't mean that we don't have corroborating evidence from other historians at the time, and we can't do a pretty good job of actually dialing in on what happened. Um, yeah, I, I think... This is one of those spots where the idea of the progression of history actually comes around and bites us a little bit because it's not like it always gets better and better and better. We have bright spots in history where we have tons of information to work from. And then we have other uh, uh, much, I suppose you could say, darker regions uh -huh. uh, where, where it's a little bit harder to yeah. determine what exactly happened. Doesn't mean impossible. Sometimes we just have to look to something other than writing. It's just that historians vastly prefer writing over any other medium. Of course. Every single time. So was Jeffrey of Monmouth? Mm -hmm. uh, was he the type of monk that in monk class he'd be like not paying attention and doodling like drawings of swords in the margin yeah you know it's weird he has this like this sort of like s shape that he drew in all of his pages oh, that was yeah. it was very cool um yeah i mean there are a few people who suggest that he was um intentionally writing what could be considered a satire with this history i think that is very generous to jeffrey um, I also saw somebody who said he just loved lying, and I might I think that might be closer <laughs> to reality. No, I think he was embellishing, and I think he was doing it in the hagiographic uh, uh, tradition. Um, and you can you can picture him hearing about this legendary warrior who killed 960 Saxons, and yeah, oh, that guy sounds rad. Mm -hmm. Man, I could just I could just like juice his story up a bit and sure. Yeah, he'd be, he's so cool. It's it's not that much of a leap to make considering the sources that we have so far. One thing that I'm kind of avoiding mentioning a little bit, but but is lurking in the back, background, is that there is also a literary figure uh, that's called Arthur, who, while he's not doing any of the things that we're really talking about here, is sort of enhancing this idea of a legendary figure called Arthur, who is a great warrior. The reality is, between the sort of mainly Welsh legends, actually, we'll, we'll get to shortly, and the uh, earlier, earlier uh, Historia, which kind of gave some details about Arthur, you know, I, I can see him kind of, you know, adding a couple names, adding a couple battles, uh, and trying to basically make his best guess at how he think, thinks everything goes in this story. And the version of history that he comes up with is essentially what we told in, the, in, in part one of this topic. Okay. I did a little bit to try and contextualize a couple of things that Jeffrey wouldn't have necessarily known uh, well enough to do himself, but um, I, I honestly wouldn't be surprised if given that information, uh, he probably would have done the same. There's a couple of things that he adds to the legend that are uh, novel, uh, first modern depiction of Merlin, for example, um, but even that's based on a, a, a Welsh legend uh, of a 
sort of a wandering madman called uh, Mirden Wilt, um, Merwin the Wild, um, that basically he went mad during a battle and, and, and now lives in the woods among the animals. Um, but there's sort of this connection between madness and, and magic in, in a lot of this, uh, era's, uh, literature. So, um, that, that, uh, that act of going mad has also given him some sort of, uh, uh, deeper knowledge that isn't available to most people, um, in the Welsh tradition. So that being said, um, Mirden Wilt isn't anything like, uh, the Merlin from the, the Arthurian legends, like at all, hmm. um, He's almost closer to like a, a trickster character uh, oh. than anything else. <laughs> I saw, I saw one person posit that the reason the name was changed to uh, Merlin, uh, Merlinus, over uh, uh, Merdin or Merdinus is that uh, it gets too close to the Latin name for poop. I was gonna ask. I have nothing to back that up, but I like the fact enough that I'm gonna include it anyways. Solid history. Um. Ah, hey, I, I gave everybody the heads up. They know what they're dealing with here. If they choose to accept it as fact, that's their own business. That wasn't a criticism. <laughs> Monmouth's work is going to be considered factual, historical, for centuries. As it does. And this is a problem, because it is not in any way remotely historical. Yeah, fan fiction. That's a, that's a, that's a reasonable touchstone to return to. But the work that exists in and around the same time also starts bleeding into Monmouth's uh, history. So it's not just it's not just this sort of Roman figure who who acts as a king and and uh, defends against the Saxons. There's also, as I mentioned, this legendary Arthur that has no like literally no attempt to contextualize him historically, uh, mainly in Welsh and Breton sources. Specifically, there's a, a ninth century poem. So it's getting dangerously close to that original uh, mention of, of Arthur. And honestly, if, uh, uh, if the dating worked out differently, it might have been the earliest one. We just can't confirm that for sure. Hmm. But anyways, this ninth century poem, uh, it refers to a, a, a warrior, not, not Arthur, but it refers to this warrior as being uh, very great, but no Arthur. As in like, yeah, he's Ooh. pretty good, but he's not as good as Arthur. There are some suggestions that this poem may date as early as the seventh century, um, but again, we have this issue of no existing copy dating from that time. Mm. And when that happens, even if the poem overall could potentially date back that far, is uh, the inclusion of Arthur in it uh, a more modern insertion or not? Because it's just a one-off. Yes. Yeah. This legendary Arthur is um similar to for example uh achilles kind of thing where he's not necessarily you know no one's saying he's the son of uh uh, uh oh, achilles is oof. Oof. almost made a mistake there where for the most part he's interacting with other human beings like we're not talking about uh you know olympus type stuff but he's a warrior and he's a protector with uh, sort of a, a legendary status. So this Arthur is uh, a king, but also he's fighting dragons and he's fighting giants and he's fighting cat monsters and divine boars and all this crazy stuff. Divine boars. And then in the 12th century, around the same time, actually, as, as Geoffrey of Monmouth is working, he appears um, in one of the greatest works of Welsh 
uh, literature, uh, the Mabinogion. And I think we're going to take a quick break just to keep things uh, uh, broken up a little bit. But when we come back, we'll talk about the Mabinogion, its place in uh, not only Arthurian legend, but in in English literature overall, and uh, go from there. Okay. Here on HI101 with Dan McGinnis. Hello. And we're, uh, we've been talking about sort of the more literary tradition of, of uh, Arthurian legend. And we're into Welsh, which I am very excited about. Hmm. I have an aunt and uncle who spent some time in, uh, in Wales. And they sent me this book when I was, uh, I'm going to guess, 12 or so, called The Mabinogion. Oh, my. Went, that looks difficult to read. And it took me a while to get around to it. I'm very glad when I did. Have you ever read it? I, I don't know that I've even heard of it. The Mabinogion is this set of uh, Welsh prose legends. And it's very interesting because Welsh has this way of being somehow very familiar and very foreign at the same time. And that makes a lot of sense. Most people don't even really consider Wales its own country at all um even though technically speaking yep yep definitely is uh it's a it's a very very tricky language uh it's enough we we don't need to say any more about that um but sort of the the amount of of cross-cultural material between uh that and sort of the standard british that informs our culture uh is is vast there's quite a bit we don't need to talk about the entire set, but it was um, a number of stories that exist since at least the 12th century, potentially much earlier, um, that were eventually recorded by the 14th uh, in their current form, translated into English eventually. And they've, they've been translated a number of times uh, over the years, but the most famous version of this is uh, um, it's about 70 years old now. And it's quite good. It's it's considered very good. It's very, very readable um, and really enjoyable stories. And the interesting thing about the Mabinogion is that it includes one of the earliest literary, uh, purely literary uh, versions of King Arthur in prose. Oh. It is not the King Arthur that you know. Oh. The story uh, within the Mabinogion is uh, called Quilich and Olwen, or Quilich Ach Olwen, I should say. And it's this story, and tell me if this sounds familiar to you at all. Uh, it's a story about this uh, this young man, Quilich, who uh, is riding out one day and he sees a beautiful woman, uh, falls in love with her at first sight, but she, uh, she flees. And um, he becomes obsessed with her. He tries to find her, can't find her, and turns to his kinsman, uh, who happens to be King Arthur, for help. And uh, Arthur, who is in this story just like, I, I always almost thought of him kind of like as sort of similar to like the ghost of Christmas present, just like this big, like right. bearded has tons of food around him all the time. I don't mm. know how accurate that uh, impression is anymore, but on. that's the way he struck me at the, at the time of reading this. When specifically I was the one from the Muppets. I was thinking specifically the one from the, uh, the, the very old um, black and white one, uh, but in any case, humbug. <laughs> he says, absolutely. This is, this is well worth my time and my warrior's time. Um, I say that like I'm sarcastic and I'm not at all. He is on board for helping to find this young man. 
uh, his true love. Um, and so he sends out uh, a number of his trusted knights, and and they include uh, Bedivere and Kay in their numbers hmm. uh, when he's naming them out, and also several with very, very Welsh names that I will not Don't attempt even. here. But nope. It, it, it matters in terms of its relation to the legend, not uh, specifically to this story. Um, it turns out they, they find her eventually, and it turns out she's the daughter of a giant. And so the giant says, no, you can't marry my daughter unless you do these 40 incredibly impossible tasks. And so Olin, with a, or sorry, uh, Kulich, with the help of these warriors, goes out and he does all of these tasks, uh, including uh, killing this giant uh, boar and eventually wins uh, Olin's hand in marriage. That's the story. It's not a complicated one. It's a, it's a very classic one. Um, does it sound familiar to you at all? Yeah. Why? The Odyssey. Not the Odyssey. Although that's a that's a, a very reasonable uh, counterpoint. Um, no, this is basically the story of Baron and Luthien from J.R.R. Tolkien's uh, Silmarillion. Aww. The Silmarillion was based very heavily on the Mabinogion. Embarrassing fact, I have forgotten large tracts of the Silmarillion. That's okay. Particularly Baron and Luthien. Uh, it's a story that's very similar to this. He kills a, a giant wolf instead of a giant boar, and it's a oh, an, uh, of elf, course, and I, it's an elf king instead of a giant. Yeah, it's and a right, like it's 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 very similar. That's okay. It's not a story that most people have read, and I'm not going to tell anyone they should read it. I would almost actively Probably encourage not, against yeah. it. Um, but no, Tolkien, uh, as with so many other things in his work, drew heavily from this. Tolkien was interested in. He, he was interested in having a, 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 a fundamentally British uh, uh, mythology. Yes. And one of his major criticisms of uh, Arthurian legend was that it was overly Christianized. Mm. And he's saying this is an incredibly devout Catholic. Yes. Um, he, he believed that there had been uh, almost a corruption of it, that you couldn't extract a, a mythology of the land from uh, uh, the mythology of the religion. And um, he wanted to create... Uh, when he was writing uh, The Lord of the Rings, uh, a, a fundamentally British mythology. And to do that, he turned to a number of sources. One of them was the um, Norse mythology, because yes. there's so much uh, uh, North Norse cultural heritage uh, in Britain. Um, but he also turned to the Mabinogion as a pre-Christian, although that's not actually true, um, a, a sort of pre-homogenized uh, British culture uh, source for inspiration. I was going to ask, uh, I can see a little bit of um, the Welsh name that was converted into Merlin mm -hmm. in Radagast. Oh, yeah, uh, Myrden. Myrden, yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and, and that's that's something that he would do consistently throughout his literature was pull. And it's a very cynical way of looking at it would be, oh, he copped all this stuff. I think a more um, fair version of this is to say that these were these are essentially Easter eggs. These are callbacks. This is him recognizing this uh, this storytelling tradition of reusing these story elements. More fanfic. Yeah, I, I'm I'm maybe less critical of of him than Jeffrey of Monmouth, but oh oh. You don't think I'm being critical of Jeffrey of Monmouth when I say fanfic, do you? <laughs> uh, well, you know. <laughs> um, but but yeah, this is this is a major source for him. And honestly, I would I would strongly recommend reading the the Mabinogion at some point if you're at all interested in any of this. It's not the easiest thing I've ever read, but 
Um, I like the Silmarillion. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, it's it's. I don't know. There's there's something in, in intensely relatable about it while being um, very very uh, uh, foreign at the same time, which I think is is the exact right line to ride for a very good fantasy novel. Mm-hmm. I should point out. Did you ever watch uh, the Black Cauldron as a kid? I did not. Okay, but it was based on a book series um, called The Chronicles of Prydain. Uh, there were about five of them, um, also based in like very heavily on this book. Hmm. Um, so yeah, if you've ever seen the Black Cauldron, uh, that that was based uh, very strongly to to the point where characters' names were were pulled straight from the Mabinogian. Let's move on to the next sort of phase of Arthurian legend, though. There's a concept known as the Three Matters, capitalized the Three Matters, um, and it's this literary tradition in Europe. Solid liquid gas. It's this idea that there are really only three things worth telling stories about, which does sound very European. Yep. <laughs> the matter of Rome, which is uh, <laughs> a tradition concerned with classical mythology of the Roman era. That's worth telling stories about. The matter of France, which is concerned with uh, Charlemagne and sort of this uh, idea of chivalry and courtly love and all of this stuff. And the matter of Britain, which is almost exclusively about um, Arthurian legend. There's a few other things that also are included in the matter of Britain, but mainly it's Arthurian legend. Yep. I see absolutely no problems with these categories being the only things that stories are told about. Yeah. Why would you want anything about anything else? Yep. These are the only good stories out there. And the impact that this has on the Arthurian legend is basically adding two really major themes to the story, which, again, are really saying a lot more about the 12th century than they are about um, the legends themselves. One is the idea of Camelot as a doomed utopia. It's too good for this world. And that were it for um, the, the grace of God, it would be possible to have that sort of uh, uh, utopia on earth but it's uh, disrupted it's it's brought down by the folly of man um the other uh, major theme is uh the the grail and the metaphor of this the quest for the grail as um one for the quest for salvation both of these things are going to get leaned on like very very hard uh throughout this period um and you're going to have uh a plethora of authors who are writing about uh, King Arthur and his court in this era, that it doesn't really make sense to narrow it down to one the way we've been doing in a couple of other spots. If I had to pick one, it would be uh, uh, Chrétien de Troyes, who um, invented Lancelot, basically. But, you know, he wrote six major stories about Arthurian legends, and there were dozens, if not hundreds, written in this this, uh, this era. Courtly love is this idea that existed, invented really around the year 1200, of this sort of platonic ideal of what love should be somewhere between uh, chastity and eroticism, basically. It was this idea of taking um, uh, sort of lust for someone and turning it towards more holy endeavors. So it's this idea of being in love with somebody, but uh, using that love to go out and win battles or win tournaments or perform great deeds and ever and never really act on that love uh, itself, but not necessarily denying that that love exists. Using the idea of a muse, but, but using the, the result for, for completing endeavors. Mm-hmm, exactly. And 
I should point out that this is a purely literary tradition. This is an invention of writers of this era, as is uh, the idea of chivalry. This idea of this there, there being this chivalric code uh, that applies to uh, nobles, that applies to knights, about the way they need to conduct themselves in every aspect of their lives. Uh, same goes for basically all nobles, so the way that noble women are supposed to conduct themselves. And that's where you get this, this uh, series of stories that are written about that sort of golden era between uh, the Twelve Battles and uh, uh, Arthur leaving for the continent. A lot of these stories end up being really repetitive when you read them. Like, it's like, oh, okay, another one where a knight goes out riding looking for adventure and they find a woman and the woman asks them to do this and they go out and do it. Um, or questing like in a MMORPG. Yeah. But some of them are, they, they end up being fables really though, in, in, in the purest sense of the term, because when the knight follows the chivalric code, um, good things happen to them when they don't doom is visited upon them. Um, every single time. And that's what kind of makes them almost a little boring. That's maybe unfair because um, a lot of them are fleshed out in really interesting ways, but there is a good chunk of these that, yeah, they, they get a little tedious. Medieval era paintings are nice, but it's not very interesting until they invent the idea of perspective. It's not a bad comparison. Those two themes that we talked about, um, the quest for the grail and the, uh, the, the, the fall of Camelot, are really where you get the characters of Lancelot and Galahad. Galahad is a, uh, he's the son of Lancelot, and he's a stand-in for um, purity on the quest for the grail. He is, uh, he is someone who never wavers from his devotion to finding the grail. And the grail isn't necessarily a, a specific thing um, in... in in these stories, it's uh, an allegory for, uh, you know, salvation uh, through Christianity. And so most of the knights who go questing for the Grail fail, and they fail because of human failures, um, you know, sort of very standard uh, uh, flaws in, in the human character. Galahad is one of the few that actually manages to uh, withstand all of that. But really, he's only there as a standard to set for all of these other people who are going to fail. Lancelot, on the other hand, is a, he's a reason for the failure of, of um, uh, King Arthur in the end, because the, the idea of Lancelot's affair with Guinevere is invented at this point in time. It's not Guinevere being taken away uh, by um, uh, Mordred once Arthur has already left. Guinevere is in love with Lancelot, and this, is, this failure on, uh, uh, on Guinevere's part and the way that it affects uh, uh, Arthur is really at the at the heart of it, a, a, an allegory for the fallen garden, right? Like there's yeah. not, it's it's not hard to see that that's what that is. Yeah, that everything is women's fault. Yeah, basically. Um, that being said, it also gives a in literature um, uh, excuse for uh, Arthur to go to the continent. He goes there chasing Lancelot once he's found out about the oh. about the affair. That's the way that this story is going to change. Okay. But it it actually presents another problem, which is that well why why wouldn't he succeed on that quest? And so they enter another moral failing of 
uh, of Arthur's later on, which is um, the parentage of Mordred. They make him the product product of incest with his sister Morgaus, and oh. that incest is the thing that ultimately causes Arthur's own downfall because that um, his 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 son by his sister is the thing that kills him literally, uh, but also brings down his kingdom uh, in a more general sense. So we're getting very heavy with the uh, allegory and with the themes in all of this. Um, this isn't really helpful from a historical standpoint, except to point out that this is an era where religious allegory makes up a vast majority of the art that's being produced. And it's really difficult for someone to tell a story where, um, you know, the, the, the good and virtuous person does not succeed or where the, uh, the wicked person does not fail because the people telling the stories are not going to really allow for that to happen. And it does put things on rails a little bit, but this tells you a lot about the ideals that are being set in the high middle ages. Would Shakespeare have been calling out to, uh, this element of the Arthurian legend at all with Hamlet? You know what? I don't know Hamlet well enough to necessarily say. In particular, I'm looking at the uncle, nephew, yeah. poisoning, you know, things coming back to bite you. Yeah, I mean... It seems tenuous. It's... It's hmm. just not a huge cultural landscape, you know, for the next few hundred years, so... I'm going to say maybe. Um, Solid. The trouble there is is uh, Shakespeare, like, like so many authors, um, be because of the breadth of his work, pulls from so many places that... Mm -hmm. um, some of these themes are really universal. The idea of, uh, you know, betrayal by family is not exactly unique to Arthurian legend. It's that the theme of betrayal by family, family gets inserted into Arthurian legend because it's so ubiquitous. Mm. So whether or not it's specifically a callback to, to these stories is almost impossible to determine. That's why I can't be more specific than that. Uh, Shakespeare does include specific callbacks to uh, Arthurian legend. Um, I'm thinking specifically of uh, the uh, the play within a play in uh, in um, Midsummer Night's Dream, uh, Tristan and Isolde, which is a story from Arthurian legends. It's not going to come out until uh, come about until uh, Le Morte-Arthur, but we're coming up on that fast. That's a late 15th century retelling that, uh, or sorry, late 16th century retelling. Lamour gets a lot of play for some very good reasons. Number one, um, Mallory takes all of this body of work that's produced in the high middle ages and prunes it down a little bit. He collects it all in the same place. He collects it in a consistent tone in a, this happened first, then this happened, then this happened sort of format. He adds a few things to it, but not a lot. And this was one of the first books printed in English. Ooh. which makes it quite ubiquitous and which would have made Shakespeare incredibly familiar with it. Yeah. But the funny thing is you'd think that that would make it far more popular than it actually ended up being. Cause here's the crazy thing about Lamort. It went out of print in 1634. It went out of print because it wasn't really that desirable anymore. I don't know if you've ever read Lamort. It's dry. It's very, very dry. 
And it's because it's looking backwards, not forwards. And when you look at Shakespeare in this era, he's looking forwards. That's the future of storytelling. You have tragic heroes. You have, you don't always have the good guy winning and the bad guy losing. And, and, um, you know, storytelling traditions come and go, but the Renaissance didn't necessarily lend itself culturally towards these on rails, good guys always win sort of things. People are starting to experiment with individuality. People are starting to experiment with the absolutism of morality. These stories in Mallory are being seen as out of date. Okay. It's seen as almost a symbol of all of the things that the Renaissance is trying to react against. And it's nothing so deliberate as, as, as that, really, right? Like, I'm talking about a, a cultural analysis of all of this as though there's some sort of very deliberate um, uh, action behind it. And that's not the case. It's just an unpopularity. Exactly. And so while Lamort ends up sort of becoming the stand-in for the 12th century, 13th century um, uh, literature that comes about around King Arthur, it's really kind of the last of its type. And people are going to move away from King Arthur quite, quite a bit. Part of that problem is its depiction of the ideas of chivalry and of courtly love. And they're seen as incredibly uh, um, unattainable as being kind of almost ridiculous. Like, why would you hold yourself to those standards when they're so clearly unable to be met? And people had trouble relating to these stories thinking that these were actually people who had actually held themselves to those standards. And that's when that presentism comes into play, right? right? They are seeing these knights as being literally knights of the 13th and 14th centuries, behaving in these ways that were created by the literature of the 12th and 13th centuries. And none of that is true. Again, if we were to talk about any sort of historical figure, I mean, think Roman legions more than anything else. But yeah, it kind of just goes away a little bit and what little Arthurian legend exists ends up really existing mainly as political allegory. People use the vehicle of the characters of Arthurian legend to tell tales about their current kings, mm. but with just enough plausible deniability to not actually be about them. What are you talking about? Oh, there's similarities there? Huh. I, I didn't realize that when I was writing it. Pure coincidence. A long tradition. By far the most popular Arthurian legend of the 17th and 18th century. And this gives you a bit of an idea of where we're at in terms of popularity is Tom Thumb. Oh, I don't, I know the name, but I don't know much about Tom Thumb. He's a man the size of your thumb. He goes on adventures. Oh, in one of them, he meets King Arthur and they become friends. Oh, this is what Arthurian legend becomes. There's just no interest in it whatsoever. Yep. Basically until the 19th century when you have the Romantic Revival. Does that mean that Mallory ends up being definitive partially by default? If it's the last major thing written as it's going out of style? Little of A, little B. Um, Mallory is good. And um, compared to uh, the other uh, sort of medieval era writers, he stands up very, very well. Um, but him being the last definitely helps his case. Interest comes back uh, enough under Romanticism um, that Mallory is finally reprinted again for the first time in 1816. It's been nearly 200 years. Wow. Um, we don't have to dwell too long on Romanticism, but there's this reaction after the, the Enlightenment where people are going, well, there can't 
there's got to be more to things, right? It's it's this looking for um, uh, it's this looking for uh, deeper meaning in the in the whole being greater than the sum of its parts. There's a lot of science where the have you heard of the the concept of the signature of all things? Yeah, it's this idea that if you understand um, the science behind things well enough, you can sort of understand the mind of God, which isn't exactly the way science was intended when it was first invented. Um, but also when you think about it very much lines up with what we know of Edwardian, uh, values. Um, they want things to have meaning. Uh, the French revolution Everywhere. was a little bit rough on rationalism. Yeah. Mallory sells like hotcakes once it comes back, people love it, but like so many other things in romanticism, they're taking it very literally. They think this is actually how people were, and they love that. Oh. They love that. And so there's a lot of literature comes out in this era, sort of just barely tweaking Mallory's concepts to make them really appealing to the Victorian sensibility, which, when you think about it, isn't that different than the, uh, at least in the uh, ideal uh, version, than the 13th century chivalry romanticism going on. Yeah. You never want to be appealing to the Victorian aesthetic though. Oh no, not at all, but the, you know, that's the the the, the Victorian aesthetic almost ends up appealing to the the Middle Ages uh more than anything. Oh. Yeah. Hey man. <laughs> it's just how it went. I'm just, I'm just telling the story. I didn't make this happen. I'm sorry. <laughs> um this Ends up uh, leading to uh, again one of the most uh, famous versions of this story, the the Idols of the King by uh, Tennyson. It's printed in eighteen fifty nine, and and really what it is is Mallory rewritten for the Victorian sensibility. Arthur becomes a cautionary tale for the modern man. Of course, um, you know there are sort of notes on uh, the fall of humanity here. There are notes on the, the importance of empire here. There are uh, even notes on, on the um, sort of anxiety surrounding gender roles in this era. Like there's, there's a lot of stuff in there that like when you read it, it's very Victorian. It feels very Victorian. And for good reason. I mean, at this point, Arthur has stopped, has, has long since stopped being a historical figure uh, as we would uh, uh, understand it and has become um, a, a vehicle, a, a shared um, lexicon through which people explore contemporary uh, uh, anxieties often. Yeah. And and that's absolutely what Tennyson ends up being. Uh, and Tennyson didn't make his money by writing on popular things. <laughs> um. I mean, with Tennyson, Arthurian legend becomes its most popular since the 12th century, basically, and really hasn't slowed down that much. It's just that we've maybe accelerated our pace of how we tell Arthurian legend. It just continues to be popular to a point where it's almost odd to think of Arthurian legend almost entirely disappearing for 200 plus years. It is, yeah. Um, It's always been there. It's not as though people forgot about Arthur. I mean... um, there's always this this sort of anxiety around Arthur, I think, almost. Uh, he's never necessarily a welcome figure. Um, I, I don't know if you've ever heard this story, but um, Henry VII, father of Henry VIII, Henry VIII wasn't the oldest child. No. They had a son named Arthur who died when he was a child, um, Henry VIII's older brother. And there was a strong belief within the family that if they hadn't named him Arthur, 
he wouldn't have died that it was a uh, a curse for lack of a better term did that originate with the family or was this a thing um i believe it originates with the family i'm not entirely certain though i'll look into that and i'll pop it into the notes um but yeah my my understanding is that they believed it was hubris to name another king arthur uh because the legendary one was so legendary yeah there's also an aspect of the uh, arthurian legend that we haven't really touched on that much which is the circumstances of his death many of the legends by the time mallory uh arrives mallory included hold that arthur was not dead on the battlefield that he was taken to uh the isle of avalon where uh he may have died but he may also have been healed of his wounds and he may be waiting there to someday uh return to take control of britain um there's this resurrection story baked into the legend which again looking at some of the other religious uh uh aspects of it makes perfect sense i mean why wouldn't he he's already a a savior of britain why wouldn't he be one uh, with a resurrection story um so the idea with the with the tutors was that maybe it was hubris to name him arthur because it's basically like saying that he's returned yeah i mean since to, to get back to tennyson though i mean wagner wrote an opera about arthur um because of course he did, right? I mean, there's the Mark Twain version with the Connecticut Yankee and King Arthur's Court, um, which is, you know, more than anything, a parody of, of uh, 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 American culture at the time. But that's how Twain, Twain. rolls. Yeah. T.H. White's Once and Future King, which is the version that kind of plays with Arthur's early days uh, to maybe fix some of the issues. For example why does Uther keep going so long after King killing Gorlois? And in T.H. White's version, well, he, he doesn't. There's just a gap of several years where there's no king. Why would Arthur sleep with his sister? Well, in T.H. White's version, he doesn't know that he's Uther's son. Um, and it's sort of this uh, more Oedipal version of uh, uh, um, downfall story. Right. There's the uh, Marion Zimmer Bradley's uh, Miss of Avalon, um, it's the Arthurian legends taught, told from an entirely female perspective, which is an incredibly novel uh, version. It's incredibly good, really enjoyable. So again, you have all these like anxieties coming up through uh, the Arthurian legend. Um, uh, what, you know, what, what, what is going on with all these women that we don't have the story of, right? Um, I'm honestly, and, and um, unironically going to include uh, Monty Python's version in here because uh, it's, it's, it's an incredibly silly movie, um, but the Pythons are not idiots. They're incredibly smart men. Yes. And their juxtaposition of the Arthurian legend versus people who are very clearly taken directly out of 1960s, uh, 1970s British society um, does exactly what Arthurian legend has always done, which is to hold a mirror up to society and and um, show that this mystical... Um, ill-defined historical period where everyone was perfect doesn't really hold up to the way that people actually live. And um, I, I, I think that there is actually some value to that movie in that sense. Um, look, it's, it's still ridiculous. I'm, I'm not going to pretend otherwise. But it's, it's interesting that it still does kind of fit that pattern uh, as ridiculous as it gets. And that's, it kind of, you know, it's 10 years after British comedians started actually making fun of their own society and, mm-hmm. and tearing into the upper crust. It kind of um, makes sense that Python would be starting to apply that uh, humorous critique backwards to the foundational legends of 
Well, of course, the I, early kings. How 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 better to attack Britain and British society than by going after King Arthur? Yeah, there's there's, I, I mean, you know, Life of Brian wasn't done until afterwards, but I, I I would imagine that at that point in time, it was potentially some of the most subversive stuff that they'd done, specifically because of who they're going after. Yeah. Um, I'm sure there's specific bits that you could hold up and, and refute on that, but. Arthur was untouchable up until that point. They had difficulty finding a castle to shoot in. Yes. And there was only one castle in Scotland that would let them actually film. And now that castle is mainly a tourist attraction for being the Holy Grail movie set. Yeah. It's interesting, though, the way that they've taken and, and shown that, hey, these ideas of chivalry, that's not that's not workable. Like, that's not how people are. Yeah. And. To have people walking around and spouting these these uh, uh, these lines about courtly love, they they don't they don't make sense. Again, I, I don't want to read more into it than there is. It's still at its heart a comedy, but um, I think comedies really can be in that tradition quite comfortably. Um, contemporary tellings at this point uh, of Arthur are almost all, um, hey, what happens when we strip out all the magic and try and tell it like he really was a Roman and. Yep. I think we're a little poorer for it, honestly, as I said at the beginning of this one. I have never really found a lot of value in those, um, personally. They can be okay, but that's not what's interesting to me about uh, Arthurian legend. Um, The fantastical elements... It's a story. It is a story, exactly. But um, as I said earlier, when when you strip all that stuff out, does it continue to be a, a story about Arthur, or are you just telling a different story with some similar names? I would argue the latter. So... What has all of this told us, other than being kind of a survey of different literary traditions throughout the ages? I think it's really easy to see how we go from some sparse scraps of potentially historiographic material to uh, a completely removed legendary figure fairly easily. Um, I think it also shows how little um, historicity matters to people when stories matter to them enough, which in turn can be difficult for historians. Slightly. Because what we get is, you know, a new documentary every year trying to prove that, no, we really do know where the uh, location of Camelot is, and it's here. And, you know, so? Yeah. Like, it it, it doesn't... The, the things that people care about in this story are not even remotely historical. And so either we can worry about the things that they care about and we can ignore the historical record altogether, or we can try and do good history here and we end up stripping away all the things that people are passionate about. Um, you know, there there are theories that uh, if there was a historical Merlin, he might have been a, a, a Druid practitioner. Maybe. Sure. That That's cool. Um, there have been people who have written about Arthur since uh, that story came out that have cast uh, Merlin specifically as a druid. That's interesting. That's a that's a really interesting take on it. But again, like what do we from a cultural standpoint, this is important stuff. Because these archetypes give us a vehicle to tell uh currently meaning sto- meaningful stories through familiar uh, uh voices. Um and that's that's a valuable thing. But and and I, I think in history, it's really important to pay some attention to that, because what we are trying to do at the end of the day is tell uh, relatable stories. But there is also that danger of, of um, getting uh, 
sort of seduced by things that are, are incredibly popular and, and getting kind of pulled away from the, the evidence that we actually have. So that's Arthur. Hmm. There's very, very little from a historical standpoint about the man himself. Uh, as we said in that quote, if he exists, there's very little of value that we can say about him. For a historian. For a historian. Yeah. From, from, a, from a, a humanist perspective, there's, there's quite a bit more meat on them bones. Indeed. But that doesn't mean it's not worth talking about. In fact, I, I think, um, I, I doubt that hunger for, but maybe, is ever going to go away on this one. So, no. um, you know, we'll keep making those documentaries and keep writing those books and people will keep saying, no, he probably didn't exist until somebody signed something big and then we can revisit re, uh, this discussion. Until some old British gentleman walking through oh, a field. Can you imagine him digging up something in a field and getting getting yeah. on the news? Ah, oh, so good. All he's he wouldn't even care. He just, he's just, just his hobby. It's just his hobby, man. He loves doing it. He doesn't really But he'll never show it. He'll never admit that he loves it. No. No. Well, Dan, thank you so much for coming on and talking King Arthur with me today. Thank you for having me. So that's our show on King Arthur. Outside of our usual scope, certainly, but one of those topics that I felt I'd have to do sooner or later. So why not do it in the context of the April Fool's episode? The next episode of HI 101 won't be going up on May 1st because I'm going on vacation for the first time in more years than I'd care to admit. It's just long enough that I can't reasonably keep up my usual production schedule, so May is going to be a one-episode month. I know that's a bit disappointing after April was already a bit lighter, but I promise by June we'll be back into some meaty two-parter that I struggle to keep under 90 minutes per episode. Uh, We'll be back there before you know it. In the meantime, next time on HI101, we'll be talking about the satanic panic of the 1980s. That'll be up on May 15th. Since HI101's format can result in some factual errors, I encourage you to visit hi101.ca and check out the corrections I post for each show there. That's hi101.ca. If there are any errors I haven't addressed on there, please let me know and I'll add them to the notes. You can also reach me on Facebook at facebook.com slash hi101podcast, on Twitter at hi101podcast, or by email at contact at hi101.ca. It doesn't just have to be about corrections. I look forward to hearing from listeners for any reason and respond when I can. And remember, HI101 is a broad introduction. If the subject we've discussed today has caught your attention, you should start looking for more information yourself. No matter how much you enjoy the show, I promise you'll find even more good stuff out there. I'm Adam Blesky, and this has been HI101.